0: Also, should mention Nick and Amy Taylor are with us this morning. Um, please, Nick is—they're—they're they're getting ready to. He's been kind of um, building a support base and getting ready to uh, go out with uh, TriM, um, teaching the Bible to really to pastors and ministry leaders. Um, so, please be sure to sit at their table at lunch and talk to them. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter. Ten this morning, I told you this story before, but it's a good one, so I want to tell it again. Uh, Saint Nicholas, who was a real man who lived from AD two forty to the year three forty three, he was the bishop of Myra in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, um, and he lived through some of the most brutal persecutions that had uh, taken place in his region. And while many um, Christians gave in to their um, torturers and ended up denying Christ, Nicholas remained steadfast and maintained his confession of faith in Jesus. As a result of that, he was beaten and exiled, and ultimately he was thrown in prison where he continued to be tortured. And all the while, Bishop Nicholas Uh, maintained his confession of faith, and he lived to see the day when persecution of Christians was finally banned in the Roman Empire with the the Edict of Milan, the year 313 A.D. A decade later, um, and this is where the story gets interesting, St. Nicholas, as we often remember him, he was one of the bishops who had attended the first uh, church Council in Nicaea at AD in the year 325. Uh, this is a group that would go on to compose the Nicene Creed. The Council of Nicaea was called because of a, a controversy that had developed in the church concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. And the question essentially came down to this was Jesus truly God or fully God and fully man? the emperor, uh, Constantine, was probably newly converted to Christianity. Um, He was presiding over the meeting and several bishops were given the floor to expound, basically to preach on their theological views. The most notorious of them was a bishop named Arius. He was famous for denying the deity of Christ. Arius taught that that although God the Son indeed did pre-exist before creation, before Genesis one one, he did pre-exist as a divine being before creation, but he believed and he taught that Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father. Uh, the opposite position, which was championed by a guy named Athanasius, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria, He taught that the the Father and the Son existed together with the Holy Spirit from eternity past. But the disagreements went even further than that and involved the question, really, of whether the Father and the Son uh, were of the same substance, as they put it, and whether the Son was in any way subservient to the Father. Well, one day, as Arius spoke at great length in this council, Old, jolly old St. Nick uh, grew more and more aggravated and less and less jolly. And it's not hard to imagine him squirming in his seat irritably as he listened to Arius's heresy. St. Nicholas was committed to what all Christians have always known to be, the orthodox position that Christ was, in fact, fully God and fully human, fully man. In fact, Nicholas had, had spilt a few pints of his own blood, For this conviction, he'd been brutally persecuted and bore the physical scars in his body. As Arius preached, Nicholas couldn't take it anymore. He heard enough of this, what became known as the Arian heresy. He got up from his seat, marched to where Arius was preaching this false teaching, reared back and punched him right in the face, right in the middle of this council of preachers from all over the Roman Empire. I don't know if I would advocate punching heretics in the mouth while they preach. That might cause some problems down the line for you. But I can certainly understand Nicholas's frustration. He had suffered greatly for his Lord, Jesus Christ. And to hear a bishop of the church proclaim that Jesus was a lesser being, a creature rather than the creator, would cause any Christian to stand up and defend the truth. And Jesus himself faced these same controversies. How could this man, by the time we get to John chapter 10, how could this man, this Jesus that that many people have known since he was a, a boy, how could this man whose family they had known for many years, how could this man be who he claimed to be? How could this man heal the sick, walk on water? Feed 5,000 men with just a few pieces of bread. How could this man develop a following of disciples? How could he have crowds of people following him across the Sea of Galilee in order to hear him preach and really to see his signs and maybe even be healed by him? How can this Jesus, who is a man, make himself to be God? They said, that's blasphemy. Or so goes their argument. When the, in the midst of opposition and threats of violence, Jesus here makes two stunning claims. He makes two great claims that really are at the, at the core of Christianity. Two claims that, 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 that must be believed if we are to believe rightly about Jesus Christ. Two necessary truths for salvation. Jesus Christ is truly God. And Jesus Christ is truly man. On occasion, uh, particularly with hostile audiences, Jesus would make a statement in order to provoke or even sometimes to purposefully confuse those who were dead set against him. Probably one of the best examples of this, at least from John's gospel, is John chapter 6 verses 48 to 52, where he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then listen to their response. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He was using the scriptures to deliberately provoke and even to confuse them. He does it a number of times, including in today's passage we're going to get to here in just a second. Um, as this unfolds, this will all hopefully make sense. And then what he does is he, usually he, he will reason with them or debate with them as to why his statement, whatever he has said to confuse them, why it is true. This actually happens twice in this section, so I'm going to read it. I'm going to see if you can catch where it happens. Um, John chapter 10, I want to read verses 30 to 42 to the end of the chapter. Uh, I'll tell you right now, he does it in verse 30 and he does it again in verse 34, deliberately provoking them. So let's read this, John chapter 10 verses 30 to 42. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Father, I pray that you would just give us what we need today. Speak to us through your word. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name. This section here opens with a a dramatic and intense scene. Jesus stands in the temple surrounded by an angry mob. And this mob is made up of, no doubt, some, some regular Jewish people who were there and, and see this all begin to unfold. But also, and especially, it is made up of these influential and powerful men who, when they, when they hear his words, they scramble to grab the most convenient and brutal weapon that they can find. Rocks and stones. And these powerful men are ready to crush his skull. This is a scene straight out of the Old Testament. They are ready to pour out their wrath on this man, Jesus. He has finally gone too far. To their minds, they've heard him, um, as we think back over the book of John, they've heard him threaten the temple. He he had said all the way back in chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they didn't understand that he was talking about the true temple, himself. And so they heard it as a threat to their holy place, not as a prophecy concerning his crucifixion and resurrection. Then in chapter 5, they had heard that, that he was instructing people to break the law, to break their Sabbath commands. And so in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, we read So the Jews said to the man who had been healed by Jesus, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Who does he think he is? And this this grumbling about him continued because this Jesus also started teaching that, that their religious symbols were actually about him. In, in John chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? These powerful men hated Jesus because he claimed an authority that was even higher than their law. It was even higher than Moses. And they hated him because he went so far as to heal a man who had been born blind. And if that wasn't bad enough, he did it on the Sabbath. And then all along, all throughout his teaching, he has been calling God, my father. The nerve of this guy. And so since at least chapter 5, verse 18, they have been looking for a way, a reason to kill Jesus. So what was it that put him over the edge on this day? What was it that made them, really for the second time actually, try to seize an opportunity to to stone him, to put him to death? The answer to that is pretty simple. It's because Jesus now drops the figure of speech language. He, He drops the metaphors and the parables and the allegories, and he speaks in straightforward terms. They move to kill him here because of his great claims. They move to kill him because he says that he is truly God and at the same time he is truly man. And it is this second claim that he is truly man or fully man. If that were by itself, they would have no problem with that. In fact, they say that they think that that's all he is. How is this Jesus who is a man make himself to be God. Unbelievers in general don't have a problem with Jesus being a man. It's a pretty easy claim to make that Jesus was a man. In fact, we have a lot of proof, uh, historical proof, that Jesus actually existed and walked the earth as a man. We have as much or maybe even more than other historical figures, like Aristotle. But combined with the first term, the first claim that he makes, that, that Jesus is truly God, that second claim, that he is also truly man, is scandalous and, and nearly unbelievable. And it's this statement in verse 30 that causes them to arm themselves I and the Father are one, he says. Jesus Christ is fully and truly God. Just a little bit of context. Um, Remember from last week, from the previous passage, in verses 28 and 29, we saw that that Jesus has affirmed that both He and God the Father are active in the perfect preservation of the sheep. So look at those verses, just the previous uh, section. I'll begin in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Both the Father and the Son are united in the same work of providing eternal security, salvation for the sheep. And so it's an easy step to go to verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, as a... As a point of clarification, each member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each member of the Godhead has a distinct role. So the Father loves and chooses and sends his Son, and the Son obeys and redeems, and the Spirit sanctifies. So each has a distinct role in your salvation. Jesus is not here explaining in just these simple verses the full nature of salvation. He's simply making a point for those standing in front of him. I and the Father are one. He's also not saying that he and the Father are one person. In fact, there's there's a different Greek word that he could have used if he was trying to say that they were one person. And besides, if that were the case, if he was trying to say, I and the Father are one person then the distinction that John is careful to make throughout his writing and all throughout the New Testament, the other writers, the distinction that they're careful to make would be contradicted. So, for example, in John 1, just the very first verses of the book, in the beginning was the Word, and that is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Plus, if Jesus is trying to say that he and the Father were one person, then his praying to the Father would have been pointless. And and why would he claim over and over and over again to have been sent by the Father if they were truly one person, if he was simply a different manifestation of God? Instead, what he is saying here specifically, and this is the historic Christian understanding as this unfolds here, What he is saying is that Jesus and the Father are perfectly one in action in what they do. Namely, the eternal preservation of the sheep. But we need to be careful not to stop there merely with they have the same action. Because this is so much deeper than that. This statement, I and the Father are one. Combined with this further explanation in verse 32 and then down in verses 37 and 38. This is a rich theological statement. It speaks directly of Jesus' state of being, who he is. This statement, I and the Father are one, is how Jesus can say, I am. It's how Jesus can claim that name for himself. And he's just said earlier in the chapter, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am. So let's put it this way. Jesus uh, claims three basic ways in which he and the Father are one. First, they are one in will. In will. So in the previous verses, Jesus and the Father both work to secure the souls of the sheep for eternity. And Jesus is emphatic here on that point that the will of the Father is perfectly united with the will of the Son. No one will be able to snatch them out of either my hand or the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, later he will clarify the role of the Holy Spirit, but he hasn't introduced him yet. But they are one in will. And the second, they're also one in work. Work. So the eternal security, the the salvation of the believer is the immediate context there. But all of this goes even deeper than that. So jump down to verses 36 and 37. He says in 36, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Consecrated. Jesus was set apart. He was consecrated to do the works of the Father. He would said back in chapter 5, verse 36, he said, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I hope that you can hear, even in Jesus' words, the distinct roles of the Father and the Son. The Father sent the Son. And yet you can hear, I think, the unity in their will and unity in their work. And this unity or oneness of work is how Jesus can claim both John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He he can claim that to be true. And also, John chapter 10, just uh, in the previous verses there, 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. They're perfectly united in will and in work. The Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John will explain that in his first letter in chapter 4. And the Son lays down His life of His own accord. But it would be a grave mistake to stop with simply their oneness of will and oneness of work in this passage. Because they're also, and this is the most, I think, important part of our understanding of the Trinity from this passage... They also have oneness of essence. They are of the same substance. Verse 38. But if I do them, that is the works that the Father of the Father, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's that last phrase. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, This is is different, for example, than the way the Holy Spirit indwells believers. We are not one with the Spirit in this same way. This is Jesus saying that He and the Father are one divine being. They are one in substance. They are equal in power and glory. And this, of course, brings us directly to the mystery of the Trinity. uh, The mystery of the triune Godhead how can these things be as as christians we are monotheistic that is we worship one god yet this one god is in three persons god the father god the son and god the holy spirit we have to kind of let that mystery hang they are one his enemies heard him make this claim here and they understood at least in part what he was saying. And as they made moves to kill them, he asks them this pointed question. A question that they need to answer in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? This is uh, it's actually a pretty funny question. This is similar to the question, yes or no? Have you stopped beating your kids? Think about that. How are they going to answer his question? This is a brilliant move, obviously, because it forces them to admit that they did not believe his claims even though they could see the signs that he had done. Some of them, in fact, have already admitted as much. Remember the argument from verse 21? These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? the answer to that is found in the Psalms. Only God can do that. Or Nicodemus, back in chapter 3, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They have rejected his words. They have rejected his works. But notice that he says there in verse 32, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From the Father. See whether you whether you want to believe it or not, rejection of the son is rejection of the father. That's what he's telling them. These are the father's works, he says. This is actually quite popular, especially among um, progressives today. They will say that Jesus was a really good teacher who taught love and peace and tolerance, and so we must teach love and peace and tolerance. And it is true that he did do good works. He did many good works. But the good works were not his message. His message was that he was truly God. That's his message. And in asking them this question, no matter how they answer, he's pointing out that they stand condemned already. Because in verses, as as verses 37 and 38 point out, the works that he does bear witness that he is the Son of God, that he is truly God. And they bear witness in this way, not simply because of the miraculous nature of the works themselves. There are magicians, for example, in various places in the Old and New Testaments who could do various amazing things. Um... But his works bear witness. They're the fulfillment of prophecy. They're the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 35, verses 4, 5, and 6. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And they've seen this. Then the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. They've seen this. And the lame man shall leap like a deer. They've seen that the tongue of the mute sing for joy waters break forth in the wilderness streams in the desert they've witnessed all of those things in person and then add to that isaiah chapter 61 the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor this is his message in mark 1 14 and 15 repent and believe in the good news in the gospel bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The works that Jesus did testified to the fact that he was more than just some magician. He was more than just even some miracle worker. He was truly God. Yet at the same time, he's also truly man. This is the second great claim that he makes here. Jesus Christ is fully and truly man. Look at verses 33. I'm going to read 33 to 36. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now this is where Jesus seems to get a little cryptic again. And he distracts them with with kind of an obscure passage of Scripture. They've heard his argument um, that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. That his works and his words testify to his identity. They've heard all of that. They reject all of that. And they decide to apply anti-blasphemy law to put him to death. And so Leviticus twenty four sixteen is their excuse for stoning him. They don't quote it outright, but they're certainly referring to this law there in verse 33. It's not for the good works that we're going to put you to death. It's because of your blasphemy, because you are a man. Leviticus twenty four sixteen says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And then Jesus responds with his own interpretation of Psalm 82. Right, turn over there. I, I think this will help us make sense of what Jesus is saying. So flip back to Psalm 82. I want to just read this, just short, just a few verses, uh, eight verses. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long, this is God speaking now, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, again, this is God speaking, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince." And then the psalmist concludes, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. What in the world does the word gods mean there in Psalm 82? This is what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 10. Well, there are um, three options as to how we can interpret this. Uh, it can mean angelic beings, the angels, uh, and then some who fell with Satan and are destined for eternal death. As he says in verse 7 Nevertheless, like men, you shall die, fall like any prince. Or it can mean Israel's judges. That's verses 2 to 5 when he's talking about judgment and justice. And because of their own injustice, they face judgment themselves. Or, and I think this is the most likely. It could even just simply be Israel, probably at the giving of the law. Verses 2 to 5 there is a, is a summary, essentially, of Old Testament law. But look at how Jesus uses this. So keep your finger there. We're going to flip back and forth just for a second. Jesus in John chapter said, John chapter 10, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And then in verse 35, If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Jesus interprets this psalm as being spoken to men, men to whom the word of God was given. And This is actually the root of his argument. It's, it's verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 82. These were sons of the Most High, God calls them. I said you are God, sons of the Most High, that is God the Father, all of you. These are the children of God. These are the people of Israel who were a special set-apart people. They were the children of God. They were sons of the Most High. And yet because they sinned, because they broke the covenant, they faced death like any other man. There's a lot here that we're just not going to get to this morning. But Jesus is essentially saying this. He's saying, he's he's causing them a little bit of confusion. He's throwing out an obscure text. And he says, let me see if I got this straight. You're not going to stone me for doing the works of God. You're going to stone me for alleged blasphemy, for calling myself the son of God. Yet God himself has called you sons of the most high. And he's even used the term gods to describe his chosen people. Now now stay with me here because Jesus is trying to confuse them. He's not mishandling scripture or saying anything inaccurate. But he's also not laying out a full defense of his being the son of God. He's pointing them back to scripture. And he's saying to them, are you sure you know what you're doing? In fact, Jesus is demonstrating John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 This reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not even these guys standing there with rocks in their hands. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Not only that, but he is confusing and even ultimately condemning them by pointing out their outright rejection of his works and his words and their mishandling of God's word, and then he's also claiming to be truly man, and I, I think I know what you're thinking. How on earth is he doing that? This point is terrific. Um, I've mentioned a few times that when Jesus uses the term "son of man" for himself, when he calls himself the son of man, he's actually claiming to be deity. We think that when he calls himself son of man, he's claiming to be truly man. But it's actually the opposite of that. And that's because of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I've read this for the last few weeks, but I want you to get this. Daniel writes this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and, a glo- and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. This is why the ascension of Christ is so important, by the way, but we'll get to that. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be just destroyed. That's the Son of Man. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is truly God. And those things have been given to Him. And according to how Jesus Himself interprets and uses Psalm 82, the Son of God, as a title, is actually pointing to His true humanity. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. According to verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 82, God had declared, I said you are gods, you're above everybody else, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. The logical outcome of Jesus being truly man is that he would die, but not today. Not today, but soon. And no one takes his life. He lays it down of his own accord. Jesus, in these few sentences, claims to be truly God and truly man. And he appeals to his works as proof, he appeals to his words. And we can be sure that his definition of good works in this passage. We can be sure that his is different from theirs. Because his good work. Was going to the cross. In perfect obedience. And as a result of these two great claims. That Jesus is truly God. Fully God. Holy. W-H-O. Holy God. And truly. Fully. And holy man. There are two possible responses. Either rejection. You've got to pick up stones and you've got to yell, crucify him. Or it's belief. I want to point out that either of these, neither of them are passive. Neither of those responses to Jesus' claims are passive. Either we yell, crucify him. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter had said in Acts. Or we believe. And many believed in him there. It says, when he goes back to where John had proclaimed the truth about him. And they believed. So either we yell, crucify him, or we eat of the bread and drink of the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. Those are the only two responses. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard doctrines to get our minds around sometimes the doctrine of the Trinity, the truth, that that we worship a God who is one God in three distinct persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But we trust you. We can see it here, and even though our um, feeble minds can't understand all of these things, Father, we praise you that you have not left us alone. We praise you that you have loved and and sent your Son. We praise you that Jesus Christ has come perfectly obedient, lived a sinless life and died to take away our sin. And that the Father and the Son have left us with the Spirit to make us holy, to sanctify us. And Lord, that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a man who made himself into God. That Jesus Christ is truly God. And that Jesus Christ is truly man. Lord, we acknowledge that there is much more that we could say about this. But it is our prayer that we would understand these things, take them to heart, and that we would respond in belief and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.